This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. Hi, everyone. This is Chris Grosso with the Indie Spirituals podcast on the MindPod Network. I am very excited to have my guest, Dana Sawyer, with me today. I'm going to tell you a little bit about Dana before we get into the interview. Dana is a full-time professor of religion and philosophy at the Maine College of Art and an adjunct professor of Asian religions at the Chaplaincy Institute of Maine. He is the author of two critically acclaimed spiritual biographies of Aldous Huxley in 2012 and Houston Smith in 2014, and has written on a wide range of topics related to consciousness expansion, Tibetan Buddhism, Hindu mysticism, psychedelic experience, and alternative philosophies. Besides teaching at the academic level, Professor Sawyer is a popular speaker on the lecture circuit, having taught workshops at Esalon Institute, Kripalu Institute, and other such centers of psychological, spiritual, and philosophical inquiry. His work has appeared in Tricycle, The Buddhist Review, Parabola Magazine, Yoga Journal, and other publications. And to add to that, Dana is someone I consider a dear friend and uh, and a mentor of sorts. I know Dana prefers spiritual friend, and I'm cool with that. But uh, Dana's yeah. Dana, I met you. You know, I, we haven't actually met in person, but you saw the interview I did with Rick Archer over on Buddha at the Gas Pump, and right. Right. you reached out, and we've just uh, become close since then. And I'm so grateful. You know, we have these really wonderful email interactions, and. Dana is always very gracious about questions I have regarding various spiritual paths, traditions, what have you. So thank you for that, Dana, and thank you for being here today. Oh, it's my pleasure, and thank you for inviting me. You know, when we have the beard in common, let's not <laughs> we... forget the same chin whisker. <laughs> That's right. Very cool. <laughs> and that I had read uh, Indie Spirituality. I remember when I contacted you, I, I, I had really been impressed by that book. Well, thank you. I I am yeah. grateful for that, and I'm glad to see it, it crosses you know generational uh, boundaries. Not that there's a big one between us, but I love that fact but that there is. Well, I, I, <laughs> only in numbers. I feel like in spirit, very little. Um, there you go. But I I love that. Yeah, the book is able to reach younger and, and a bit older pe- uh, audiences and readers. Um, so that's that's really tremendous. It for me to hear that it resonated for you and. And I appreciate that. So, but this is about you, not me. So okay. let, right. me, let well, it'll be about us. So how about that? Perfect. A fair compromise. So all the better. Yeah. 
So I wanted to start out and begin with you and how you personally got interested in spirituality, becoming, you know, uh, a professor of Asian religions, Aldous Huxley, and, and kind of take it from there. Well, I, uh, you know, I'm definitely a product of the 60s. I started college in 1969 and uh, came from a small fishing village in Maine. I know you were born in a small village in Maine, too. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and so uh, I was going to college about an hour north of uh, New York City in Danbury, Connecticut. And um, it was a brave new world of possibilities for me. And I was being introduced to so many new and strange things that I was having trouble sorting out what was truly strange from what was just strange because I was from Maine. (laughs) (laughs) I understand. (laughs) uh, My roommates used to call me uh, John the Savage because we were reading Huxley's Brave New World at the time. And and the same way John the Savage didn't know how anything worked in this technological society of the novel, they were, my roommates were shocked that I had never ridden on a city bus. I didn't know how a payphone worked, you know. So uh, there I am in Meeker's Hardware Store on White Street in Danbury, Connecticut. And um, there was a man standing at the counter with really long hair. Okay, that was not surprising to me. I had really long hair. It was 1969. But he seemed to be wearing a dress. And I hadn't seen that before, you know, a guy wearing a dress. And uh, he turned around and he had this nut brown face and he started talking to me. And long story short, it was... Swami Satchidananda, mm. who was living in Danbury at that time. And uh, we got into a conversation, and I was really intrigued by him. He had an incredible presence. And that kind of set the hook, so to speak. All of a sudden, I had a real interest in Hinduism and uh, Asian mysticism. So I started reading a lot of books about it. That was when Transcendental Meditation was very big on college campuses. So I got involved with Transcendental Meditation, ended up going to uh, Europe and studying with Marishi Mahesh Yogi, the Beatles guru. Mm. And, uh, and then I got a real profound interest, not only personally in this idea of expanding consciousness, but um, I got interested in Sanskrit and Indian philosophy. And, uh, and so that led to graduate work and you know, I was in college for 11 years. You know, my family, my Downey's family thought, boy, he must be really stupid. I don't think he's ever going to graduate. You know, <laughs> they thought I was still doing a BA or something. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and so anyway, yeah, that was, it got me interested both personally and professionally in studying the great traditions of Asia. Great. And so how did that lead in for you to Huxley? Well, that's a great question because what happened was as I was reading across the religions, and and as I said, I'd been raised a Christian, then I had had this deep involvement in Hinduism, but in graduate school, uh, my first master's degree was at the University of Hawaii. I got very interested in Zen, and then a year later, I started studying with uh, the Nechang Rinpoche in Tibetan Buddhism. Mm. Uh, who was living in Hawaii at that time. And as I started reading in these religions, I saw common threads uh, running through, especially the mystical traditions. And so a friend of mine said, um, have you ever heard of Aldous Huxley? And I said, oh, yeah, you know, I read Brave New World in college and blah, blah, blah. And uh, 
And I had read some of the perennial philosophy, but it was one of these things I wasn't ready for it maybe at that time. Right. And a student said, you should read it because Huxley talks about what you're saying, you know, that there are these common overlaps. Right. And, uh, and so that was the lead into Huxley. Yeah. So if you could talk a little bit more about the perennial philosophy, because I know that's something that deeply interests both of us, but I would love to hear, you know, your understanding of it and how, how it was described by Huxley. Well, Huxley, uh, basically the easiest way to, to understand the perennial philosophy is that there are these, this distinction of two, two levels of religion or spirituality. There's an exoteric level of religion and spirituality that has to do with specific practices, uh, rituals, beliefs, um, cultural customs, all of that, specific scriptures. Mm. And that's the exoteric level in which religions differ dramatically one from the other. But then there's uh, Huxley's postulate that there's an esoteric level of religion that is uh, centered in mystical experience. And if we compare the writings of the mystics, Shankara from Hinduism, Rumi from Sufism, Meister Eckhart from Christianity, etc., etc., we find a lot of similarity in their descriptions. Right, uh, right. That they start talking about very similar things. And so uh, it's almost this idea that uh, the exoteric level is the more mundane level of religion. And uh, Flannery O'Connor once said, what rises must converge. And that as these different pathways to spiritual awakening, if we think of them being like um, Mount Katahdin, the tallest mountain in Maine, that you can climb the mountain by different trails. So think of the different trails as the different exoteric religions. And those trails differ dramatically from each other. Some are steeper, some have more trees, blah, blah, blah. But they all arrive at the same summit uh, of that big 360 view. Right. And, and so it's really saying that uh, when we get to that top level, Huxley said that we find that the mystical traditions uh, talk in terms of what he called the minimum working hypothesis. And very quickly, that's a, a four-part uh, theory. Right that, first of all, there is a transcendent uh, reality beyond time and space that uh, is the foundation for all that goes on in time and space. Mm. And then the second part of it is that that transcendent reality is also imminent, so this absolute oneness, this non-dual reality transcends time and space, but is also imminent not only in time and space, but as time and space. So if you think of, a, uh, if you think of an ocean rising in waves, on the surface level of an ocean, there's all this difference and multiplicity, mm. but it's all rising out of the same foundation, this oneness of ocean. And so the last part of this minimum working hypothesis is that um, not only can we know that conceptually, but we can actually experience that. Right. That we can experience reality that way. And then the last piece of it is 
that's what we've always all been trying to do all the way along. Right. That's the human project. That's what we're here for is to uh, wake up to that. Absolutely. And uh, from my own experience, I couldn't agree and relate to that more. I was personally very excited when I found that because I'd been doing my own studies uh, without really knowing much about Huxley, but reading from the great mystic traditions and understanding that they weren't all saying the same thing. You know, the great wisdom traditions aren't saying the same thing. Like you said, there's the paths are different on the mountain, but at their core, you know, they ultimately bring you to the same peak. And that was so important for me and my oh, path. Me too. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so would you say that Huxley was trying to start a new religion, a sort of universalism? No, yeah. I wouldn't say that. And why I wouldn't say it. In fact, uh, when the perennial philosophy came out, uh, Harper, who published that book, yeah. accu- accused him of that on the back cover. Mm. Uh, and they saw it as a positive, like some people are going to be attracted to this new religion of all religions that right. is kind of like, you know, I don't know, Baha'i or one of those sorts of faiths. And Huxley said, no way. Huxley said, no, what I am saying is that if we look at the religions that already exist and we look at mystical traditions or mystics outside of the established traditions, we still tend to see a pattern, a, a very recognizable pattern in the mystical literature And so he was just postulating that, that, you know, we don't need to make another religion. The religions already exist, although Huxley wasn't very friendly towards religion in general. uh, Then he was just saying that these mystics seem to be talking about the same thing. Right, right. So, you know, from Huxley to Houston Smith, he was a student of Huxley's and someone I know you're very passionate about as well. Um, so regarding the perennial philosophy, what, what, what would you say regarding their attitudes? You know, were, were there commonalities? Were there differences? Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that's interesting about perennial philosophers is that, um, it's really premised on the basis of if you recognize this minimum working hypothesis as a plausible hypothesis, then that, in a sense, is what makes you a perennial philosopher. But there is no church to join. There is, you know, secret handshake. There is right. no club card or something. Right. But when you look at different perennial philosophers, they have different attitudes, for example, towards religion. And that couldn't be, the contrast couldn't be stronger between Huxley and Houston. Mm. Because, because Huxley was more of a... Um, when we look at these different religious traditions, a common mistake that gets made from Huxley's perspective was uh, they mistake the means for a goal. That the trail up the mountain is the trail up the mountain. It's not the view from the top of the mountain. Mm. And so if you sacralize the trail or if you sacralize the means, then in a, sen- in a sense Huxley saw that as a... Uh, Well, a mistake, for sure, in the sense that you're sacralizing what isn't sacred, that the means to the goal isn't sacred, the goal, the awakening is sacred, that the path is simply one path up the mountain. So if you think, oh, this path works for me, so this is the only path anybody can take, 
then uh, you know you're calling what uh, what some people have called the sin of particularity. Mm. That you know you you think oh only my guru can get me there or only my process is the process, and you don't realize other people are on very different paths and getting somewhere on those paths. So so Huxley felt when these different religions sacralize their own path as the way that they very often start becoming not way showers, but gatekeepers. Mm. And, you know, we're, we've created a hierarchy around this and we're not going to let you, you know, you're going to be branded a heretic if you look outside of this tradition. And, and so Huxley felt like too often people who are true aspirants Religion is actually throwing roadblocks in their way. They they really want them to sacralize the rituals and the beliefs and the scriptures, and uh, it can actually be threatened by people who are having the direct experience. You know that. Right. Now Houston, and this is an easy one to finish up on this question, Chris. Yeah, yeah. Houston saw the um, traditional faiths, the wisdom traditions, as tried and true pathways up the mountain that, you know, that they work. And, uh, and part of the proof that they work for Houston is that um, insight and that spiritual awakening that's been generated by the traditional religions has built Chartres Cathedral and has built some of the most beautiful architecture in the world, the right. temples of Kajaharo, uh, the Zen temples of Kyoto. Some of the most beautiful music of the world has been created as an expression of that spiritual awakening. So, so Huxley was kind of a religion of no religion guy. And Houston was a religion of all religions guy, (laughs) but they were both perennial philosophers. Mm. So, which I love, you know, and I love that they were able to still, you know, learn, I, I guess, you know, maybe Huxley, or I'm sorry, Smith learned a bit more from Huxley, but I'm sure Huxley learned from from Smith. And, um, but what would you say Smith's contribution to the study of religion was then? Uh, in a lot of ways, Houston Smith made the study of religion possible. Mm. He really did, and I say that because <clears throat> prior to Houston Smith, even when I was in college that um, to be a professor of religion at the university level meant that you didn't like religion. (laughs) It meant that you were like other modernists based on Marxist perspectives or Freudian perspectives, and your job was really to explain a religion away away as superstitious or some some quaint pastime of wrong-minded people Mm. that uh, really needed to be gotten rid of. And so to have Houston Smith come in and write his book, The Religions of Man, uh, back in 1958, now called The World's Religions, never been out of print, that book. Uh, Yeah, amazing. Yeah, Houston told me that still pays the rent. Wow, good for him. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I want to write that book, don't you? Yeah, yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) So he... uh, In that book, he said, you know what, I'm not going to judge the religions. I'm not going to evaluate the religions. I'm just going to describe them accurately. I'm going to describe them in a way that people who belong to these faith traditions will recognize as accurate. Mm. 
And uh, then people will be able to read these religions. And what will happen is, from chapter to chapter, they'll get confused because they'll think that Houston is changing its religion every time because we rarely see somebody who's acting almost as an apologist for eight religions in a row. Mm. And, uh, and as we read, then Houston thought, every time they finish a chapter, they'll think, I finally understand why somebody would be a Jew. I yeah. finally understand why somebody would be a Buddhist. Mm -hmm. um, wow, Native Americans had some pretty amazing insight. And, um, and, and when you can understand how the other, as you know, we, we human beings are terrible about, you know, the us and them dichotomy, right. that when you can understand them, when you can look through their cultural lens a little bit, uh, what a platform for conversation and understanding. Um, you know, he really did single-handedly start the interfaith conversations, interfaith dialogues based on that, you know, project. So, yeah. And, and, you know, that's something I wanted to discuss with you too, because well, on the first hand, before we get to that, I, I just want to say what an important book that is that he wrote, you know, for just that reason, you said it's, it's incredible how intolerant people still can be towards one another's religion or even just spiritual beliefs and practices. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, though, it's nice to see it seems like a lot of people today are starting to open up. Um, I've seen a lot of that in the Christian and, and Catholic sect. Uh, it, to me, at least, a lot of the people I know uh, seem to be opening up a bit more to the idea that, okay, you know, even though my faith is in Christ, what's to say that there aren't some very valuable teachings and lessons from Buddhism or from Sufism and so forth. And that's been really inspiring for me to see uh, just because what a bum out it is, you know, when there's such an incredible thing such as spirituality and how beneficial it can be to people, but it turns into a negative of sorts when we take that spirituality or religion and we're just using it, you know, as our means of I'm right, you're wrong. And we're creating these boundaries. And then we see the obvious wars that are fought, all the blood that's spilled, all the tragedies that occur because of that. So it's beautiful to see the interspiritual movement starting to gain more and more traction, at least from my vantage point. So how would you say the perennial philosophy relates to something like that? Uh, well, you know, two things to say about that. One is, I totally agree with you, that, uh, you know, every time... Okay, Maurice Merleau-Ponty, you know, the great phenomenologist, once said, because we're present to a world, we're condemned to meaning. Mm -hmm. And what he meant by that is, once we realize, here I am over here, and here's a whole world over there, then what is my relationship to the world? What is my relationship to the other people in the world? What is the relationship between the people and the other species and the planet itself? So all these questions out of them. So as we answer those questions, then we form uh, a constellation of meaning. Mm. And that meaning becomes a filter through which we interact with the world. And uh, the analogy I use with students is, uh, 
it mediates our relationship to the world just like blue sunglasses do. If I put blue sunglasses on, I'm looking at the world, but I'm seeing it as blue. Right. And and too often what we do uh, as human beings, and as you said, is we, we're wearing blue sunglasses, but we think the world is blue. Hmm. We don't realize it's blue because that's our particular cultural vantage point. Right. So to be able to look at the world through other lenses, you know, it gives us some perspective on the relativity of uh, our viewpoint. And, uh, and that's a powerful foundation for dialogue. Yeah, absolutely. And, and very well said. Um, one last thing about the perennial philosophy before we, we move on a bit. But, you know, when it comes to non-dual experiences, um, the perennial philosophy puts a premium on the mystical experience of oneness with all reality, again, which is often called the non-dual experience. So does this mean that one spirituality should be self-focused? And if so, you know, is that a bit selfish? Um, you know, it's, it's something that <laughs> yeah. comes up quite often. So I'd love to hear your yeah. thoughts on that. Yeah. Well, you know, um, on one level, it we could say yes, it's self, it's selfish, and it's selfish because one is cognizing the deepest level of one's own being in this non-dual experience. But that means that one's consciousness, in a way, has become synonymous with the consciousness of the cosmos. Mm -hmm. That one's consciousness, one is no longer separating the the small individual ego away from the grand design of reality. It's more like the grand design of reality is looking out through one's eyeballs or uh, to mix metaphors that the wave on the surface of the ocean is finally knowing that it is just ocean. Yeah. That it's just, part, you know, and so the ocean is lifting up in, into its moment of individual expression in the world. And so if we say, oh, well, it's selfish because it's self-focused, well, if you're following me, if the self is the cosmos, then it's uh, it's saying that one all of a sudden has responsibility for everything in the world, hmm. uh, because that is what one is identifying as as the roots of one's being is all of reality. Right. I don't know if that came across, but the piece I would want to add to that, Chris, is um, when 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 Houston Smith was a young man teaching at MIT. He was working in the uh, he was he was working on the Harvard Psychedelic Project with Timothy Leary and Ram Dass. Yeah, because uh, Aldous Huxley had introduced him to Timothy Leary and they hit it off. And uh, and uh, Houston knew a lot about mystical experience. And Leary was saying, oh, some people when they're doing a psychedelic seem to be having a mystical experience. Can you verify that or 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 prove that it's not so? So Houston came on board, and he got eventually he got tired of Leary uh, talking about altered states, and Houston said, "What we really need is altered traits. Mm. That ultimately, whatever alt, you know, expanded consciousness you say you're experiencing, doesn't really matter if here in the world where the rubber meets the road." we don't see a change in your behavior in the direction of uh, more concern for others, uh, more compassion, 
you know, I think that's part of why Houston became very attractive to Tibetan Buddhism mm. is this idea that we can always tell how wise somebody is by how compassionate their behavior is. Mm. And, uh, and so for Houston, uh, no, it can't. It, it's almost like a litmus test. If you really think you're getting somewhere in your spiritual growth and you're still completely self-focused, like, oh, you know, I'm really glad I'm becoming enlightened because it's really going to help me get the chicks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> then that's like a proof that you're not getting anywhere, that your ego is still metastasizing to whatever experience you think you're having that. Yeah. yeah, it's got to it's got to come out into the into the world. Right, right. So well said. Absolutely. And and I was just speaking with someone yesterday about um, something that I've struggled with uh, is getting out of my head when it comes to spirituality and focusing more in my heart, um, you know, and in cultivating that compassion for myself and for others and, and really embodying that. And, you know, thank goodness two practices like loving kindness meditation and just meditation in general, amongst many other things, shadow work, all sorts of things. It helps us to do that. And so we can show up and be that in the world. So, uh, finding a balance of the two, you know, it, it's at least in my journey, been exceptionally important, something that's not been easy, but you know, the work often isn't, but it's part of the past. It's all grist for the mill as Ram Das would say. So I know that Houston had a very interesting view of enlightenment. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, a, a couple of things to say about that. One is, you know, touching back on your question about uh, what Houston added to the study of religion relative to the yeah. perennial philosophy. Yeah. Really, he, uh, and then we'll, you know, I'll answer this question. Sure. Is that... Um, if we think of the last two or three hundred years, then uh, religionists tended, believers tended to fall into one or two categories. There were exclusivists who said, okay, uh, my religion is exclusively good and everybody else is lost and wasting their time. Mm -hmm. Or inclusivists that said all of the religions are really saying the same thing. Okay, so a universalism. And uh, what, what Houston did with the perennial philosophy was add a third choice, which is to say, on the exoteric level of the separate religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, Christianity, Judaism, there is tremendous difference. So they're very different from each other. At the esoteric level, we have this convergence that mystics experience in the Enlightenment experience. But all of the mystics of all of the traditions say this experience is ultimately so mind-blowing, to use a euphemism from my generation, that uh, it's ineffable. We can't describe it ultimately. I can, I can try. I can give ideas about it. But um, this is what I'm driving for here, which is that uh, the human mind can only comprehend so much of what ontically or noetically the spirit is experiencing right. that there will always be a level of difference and diversity between cultures, uh, you know, and viva la difference. Mm -hmm. But 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 this perennial philosophy view also builds a bridge across the traditions in saying, look, you know, uh, 
it seems to be a human response at a deep level of spiritual insight that no matter where you are, even if you were raised by wolves on, a, on an island by yourself. So if you're on that you know, island by yourself being raised by wolves, that there is some level uh, of a human response to reality. I mean, the, the, this is, you know, the idea of a perennial philosophy is of a primordial philosophy, mm-hmm. that there is this implicit spiritual connection we have to reality, and the human uh, mind is always longing for the freedom and release into that non-dual state and that we will find our way to it, uh, inside religion or out. That's part of why uh, Houston was so um, interested in Esalen, where other friends of his who were like, oh, no, only the the uh, traditional religions are pathways up the mountain of awakening. Right. Houston said, well, I've been to Esalen, and I've met some of the people that are working there and teaching there, and eye contact tells me that they've gone somewhere. So, and I can't deny that experience. I mean, they're speaking truth and they're acting compassionately. And uh, and so he kind of went for both, you know. He went for uh, indie spirituality as well as traditional spirituality. But I don't think I answered your question. <laughs> well, so we were just, well, no, that was all great. I'm an old I, man. you got you to put up <laughs> no, I appreciate all that. But so, we were, yeah, we were talking about the, the view of enlightenment as well. Um, you know, and, and oh, it's something I know track. that, yeah, he had a, an interesting view of that. He did. And his view, Houston's view was that, um, that enlightenment as a state of perfection, uh, doesn't exist and can't exist. So in ways he became kind of antagonistic to some of the traditions that he had really been a participant in. Like for instance, he had studied with a Hindu Swami, Swami Sat Prakashananda on a weekly basis for more than 10 years. Mm. Houston was once the primary authority on Zen Buddhism in the United States, uh, studied in Kyoto at Myosinji, uh, wrote the introduction to Shinru Suzuki's Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, right. Kaplow's Three Pillars of Zen. I mean, uh, he didn't, you know, he says he believes the mortal coils are too strong for us to break all the way through to some kind of um, the Buddha, maybe as Mahayana Buddha see him. But Houston's viewpoint was, we don't need to. Houston, uh, his view was, if, if I've been to Paris once, I know that Paris is there, and it informs the way that I see things. Mm. And so, uh, if you get the metaphor... So that even even a non-dual experience that comes and goes is um, resource enough to continuously inform one's behavior. Mm. That that the best aspirant ultimately wouldn't be, uh, from Houston's perspective, the yogi sitting in a cave high in the Himalayas, continuously in a non-dual state. If he had his, pre- if there were only two choices, and the other one was um, a Red Cross worker in an impoverished part of the world, he would take the Red Cross worker right. because he still wants to place uh, importance on traits over states of consciousness. Hmm. So, what's what's your feeling on that? 
Uh, you know, Aldous Huxley once said that the greatest invention of the scientific revolution was not the steam engine, was not the accurate clock, but uh, the concept of a working hypothesis. And so I tend to keep the jury out on these things. Sure. Um, I can't speak from personal experience that such a state as perfect consciousness exists or, right. or, or even I, I don't have a continuous experience of non-dual awareness. Yep. Have I experienced non-dual awareness? Definitely, many times. Uh, and, um, you know, like you, I've mined the religions for a toolbox of practices <laughs> and, uh, and meditate regularly. And often in meditation, I will have a non-dual experience. Now, can it be cultivated permanently? I'm still kind of on the fence about that. I, I feel like, I don't know how you feel about that. I'd be interested. Sometimes I feel like with some non-dual teachers, um, I can still see the ego floating around. Not just personality, but I can still see the ego at work in there. Right. Not to, I'm not making judgments. I'm just being descriptive right. that I... I uh, you know what I'm saying. I'm curious what you think about that. Yeah, I mean, kind of similar to you. I haven't experienced, I mean, yes, I've had the non-dual experiences and those are a wonderful, um, they're, they're very beneficial. You know, for me, they help me keep going. They help me know that, all right, everything I'm reading from these mystics, saints, yogi, sages, it's not BS. You know, it's a very real thing. Um, yeah. As far as the permanent state of that, yeah, how do I know? Because I'm not in that permanent state, you know, and so having not directly experienced it continuously, how do I know? I know with someone like Ken Wilber, he said, or he wrote once that he had experienced it for 11 days straight, which is pretty amazing. Um, and I know Ken well enough to know he wouldn't lie about something like that. Um, yeah. But, you know, that was 11 days and then he came back down and and here we are. You know, the mortal coil, as you said, it is very yeah. strong. <laughs> it is. It but is. then again, so reincarnation, you know, we... If, if you believe in that, which many of the Eastern traditions do, I personally do, um, just because it makes sense to me. But you think about these countless, I mean, thousands and thousands of lifetimes. What's to say that we don't live so many times that we inevitably get to a point where we burn off all that karma, where nothing's left, you know, except this primordial awareness. So I, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, see, I'm in the same place, and I'm fine with the jury being out about that. Right. You know, I look at some teachers. Um, I'm trying to think of teachers today. Um, Adyashanti. I think yep. Adyashanti is having a continuous experience of non-dual awareness, and he's not BSing about it. Hmm. I, th I think where, where teachers can get in trouble is that Though you're very much having that non-dual experience of ultimate reality looking out through your eyeballs, your eyeballs are blue or your eyeballs are brown. Mm. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is uh, you're still processing that experience through a human mind. Yeah. And so you're going to interpret that experience. Like think of, a, think of an absolute in our regular experience like the sun. Mm. That we all see the sun, we all see the moon. But uh, if we look at the poetry of the world, people have interpreted the moon differently and, and seen it from different vantage points. And so I think that the human side of us is still very much with us. Mm. Uh, 
you know, it, it's the context in which the non-dual experience is there and will always have an influence. Right, right. Beautifully said. Well, my two cents. <laughs> and I appreciate them. <laughs> so, I mean, there's a ton of, of more questions I have for you. I, we have about, I think, roughly 20 minutes. So there's two things I definitely wanted to get to okay. before time runs out. And then if we have more time, we'll cover some other ground. But the first is which... You know, you've been teaching at the college level for more than 30 years, and and that's that must be pretty amazing to, you know, been and, and watched for 30 years, these students and trends and phases come and go. And so what would you say has changed about students over that time? And what would you say uh, that students today are hungry for regarding spirituality? Well, that's a great question. Uh, you know, when I first started teaching way back in the early 80s, uh, teaching full time, it was the Gen Xers. And the Gen Xers, they had a pretty grim view of life, you know. I mean, they, 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 they were, you know, uh, fastidiously listening to The Cure yeah. and, uh, and The Smiths and uh, <laughs> Nine Inch Nails. And, and so they'd come and sit in class with their hoodies up and, uh, you know, they were they could be pretty existential and, and pessimistic in their outlook. And one thing and one thing I've really seen change is um, more hope more, uh, uh, and more hope for hope. You know, I hope that there's reason to hope, you know, yeah. uh, with young people today, uh, you know, maybe because this generation hasn't had a spiritual path shoved down their throat. And some of the Gen Xers felt like their parents were, you know, too addicted to one particular religious perspective. And and there was so much cynicism in, the, in that generation uh, that I saw that they enjoyed poking holes in their parents' ideologies, whatever they were. Yeah. Whereas I, whereas I see less of that now. I see more openness to spiritual teachings. And uh, what what they have in common with each other is interesting which is they place a premium on the sovereignty of personal choice. Like, this is my path to walk, man, so don't tell me what I'm going to do or, or what my path is going to be. Yeah. But at the same time, their ears are more open. They're more willing to uh, listen to teachers like you who aren't trying to jam something down their throat. Mm. Someone who's just saying, I, uh, you know, I just want to share. Yeah. And, and uh, they're very open to that. And uh, that excites me, actually. Yeah, that is really great. You know, I look back. First of all, I was laughing because I, I still listen to The Cure and The Smiths and, and Nine Inch Nails. So, yeah, I guess, you know, maybe that that uh, attributes to my brooding mood sometimes. But, hey, man, you like what you like. But um, I'm thinking back to my, you know, myself when I was a teenager, and this is going back to the early to mid nineties. And I was that very angry youth, angry at religion. I, I, to be honest, didn't know the difference between spirituality and religion at this point. To me, it was just the same thing. Um, you know, and I was raised in a family where I did not have God shoved down my throat. My parents believed in God, probably a traditional idea of God, but they didn't make us go to church. Um, so later, after I got over that angsty experience, I was very grateful for that because it made stepping onto the spiritual path much easier for me. I didn't have baggage, you know, that I carried with me from childhood. And 
another thing that comes to mind is that I had done a couple of internships for substance abuse counseling in school. And one of the greatest issues people had was uh, a relationship with God or a higher power. You know, even taking God out of the uh, equation, just something greater than themselves. And the result was because they were having these experiences of religion forced on them, you know, as kids, as they were growing up and just these negative uh, experiences that, that stuck with them. So it is great to see today's youth, uh, for the most part, it seems like, or for a, a bigger part, at least, that they are much more open, that they are more inquisitive, that they are seeing that, you know, religion and spirituality both have really awesome things to offer us. Again, that's not to say everyone, but you know, that's, that's all right. My friend, Chris Stedman, he's a, uh, the human chaplain, uh, humanist chaplain down at Yale university. And he's an atheist, but he wrote this wonderful book called Faithiest. And, uh, Faithiest is a term he explained to me that it's a negative, uh, connotation towards atheists because these atheists believe that they can have open relationships and work with people that are into spirituality and religion. They're more focused on coming together as humans and serving one another and still helping one another. And so he, you know, he's like, I'm reclaiming this word. It's not an insult. And so even if you're not believing in God, you know, that you, there's still spirituality that can be had and it's really beautiful thing. And who knows what tomorrow will bring, you know, once you step onto that path, but it's great that the open-mindedness is there and growing. That's, I guess, what I'm trying to get at. Absolutely. You know, once you have that, and this faithiest guy sounds like he's got it, Yeah. is once you have that open-mindedness, then the doors of communication are open and the humanism can flow yeah. that, okay, we don't always have to agree. Uh, we may always have to compromise, mm. you know, if we're in proximity to each other as individuals or as cultures. You're a married man. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, we have to compromise. But at the same time, what beauty comes out of that? Because yes. we live in we live in a world of difference and diversity. And uh, and uh, and that's it. You know, so I think that students are, are really waking up to that. I yeah. really do. You know. Yeah, so cool. So, so wonderful. Good time to be alive. Scary at times, but it's, it's really uh, keeps you on your toes. So, so the other, what's, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, you know, uh, uh, Stanislav Grof said something like, uh, it seems like in the near future, Armageddon and Utopia are going to (laughs) coincide. Like we put up so much, we've turned the heat up literally and figuratively on this planet, uh, that we've kind of got to wake up. You know, yes. that uh, yeah. it's time to wake up, maybe a good way to put it. Right. And, uh, and, uh, and I see some of that happening. You know, whereas once it was standard to say, well, if you're borrowing tools of spiritual growth from different religious traditions, you're wasting your time. You're taking what you want instead of what you need. And, right. and we've heard a lot of that kind of rhetoric about cafeteria-style religion right. and, and that kind of thing. And I... I you know, maybe it's just my personal preference. I, I have no problems with people who are walking a very solid spiritual path inside of an established tradition. But I think it's also fair for people to say, um, as you said, I'm taking an inter-spirituality approach yeah. or an indie spirituality approach. Uh, and there's much more openness to that than there was you know, at one time. Yeah, I mean, if, if I'm honoring my truth, 
then that is my truth. You know, I think back to high school and I remember it seeming odd to me that it was, I went to a school in a small town. It was a rural town. And I remember it was segregated kind of in a way where it was like, you had the people that listened to metal music. You had the people that listened to hip hop or rap music. You had like the gearheads. you had the, um, what was it? The choir students and the skateboarders. And I guess I you felt must had, you must have had the emos too. Oh yeah, I do. I, so <laughs> yes. And I fell into the skateboarding, but well, here's the thing. I was the skateboarding alternative kid, but I also loved punk hardcore and emo. And, um, but I, I loved metal. I loved hip hop. I was friends with some of the band kids. Like I didn't understand why we had to have all of this separation. So you know, that's just how I am naturally as a human being. So when I come to the spiritual path, I'm not personally the type of person where I can just stick with one thing. I mean, granted, Buddhism and and I think Vedanta and the perennial philosophy, these are the things that really speak the most strong to me. But of course, I'm still reading things like texts from uh, any of the great mystic Christians or Sufism, you know, Zen, whatever the case is. If it resonates with me, then it resonates with me. I'm not personally trying to be a scholar in a particular religion where I think if that's the case, sure, maybe then you're going to be more focused in one area. But, you know, I'm just trying to be a better person each day and to cultivate my spiritual life in, in a way that not just benefits me, but helps me be of service to other people. And that's what works for me. So, you know, honoring my yeah. truth. Oh, I'm totally with you. I mean, I'm even with you on the part. I mean, I was listening to what is that song, Arab on the Beach or whatever by The Cure. I was listening oh, yeah. to that yesterday. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, I got my sort of dark night of the soul stuff uh, was Tom Waits and Rain sure. Dogs. Yeah. And, um, and you know, people say, uh, oh, there's no spirituality in that music. You know, yeah. uh, friends of mine would say, okay, if you're listening to hip hop, there's no spirituality in that. Well, if we start at the place that we do live in a non dual universe, then everything is rising out of the sacred. And on some level, everything is sacred. I mean, from a God's eye view, it's all just this one pulsing, beautiful phenomenon. Yes. And so if you say, okay, but this part of it is sacred and this part isn't and this part isn't, then those divisions are only divisions in your mind. Uh, you can be you can be mining anything for the sacred. Yeah. Uh, As Ken Wilber says, he calls it spirit in action, you know, spirit continually awakening to more of itself or um, ornaments of spirit. You know, everything you see in the material level has has come from from somewhere, you know, from this from this ocean, if you will. And and in a way, it is an ornament of spirit. And that resonates as a very deep truth for me. And it also helps me to see the sacred in everyday things like hip hop or a computer or whatever, you know, not that I'm idolizing them or making them a God, but you know, it's, it's all interconnected back to source. So yeah. So so the last thing I definitely wanted to cover with you, because this is something you and I have even uh, most recently been emailing about uh, is psychedelics. And especially I know Huxley and Houston, they both wrote books that were favorably inclined towards the use of psychedelics particularly as a means of triggering, you know, the, this mystical insight. So I'd love to hear what you'd say about how psychedelic experiences occurring, you know, naturally occurring mystical experience. Do you think they have value? Um, you know, I know you're doing some interesting research right now regarding Buddhism and precepts. So I would love for you to talk, you know, about psychedelics in relation to 
the spiritual path, mystical experiences, you know, is there benefit, is there value or should they be set aside? What, what, what do you think? Oh, I think definitely they have value. You know, it depends on how they're used and, uh, and who's using them. And, uh, you know, all psychedelic experience isn't mystical experience necessarily. I mean, if you're, you know, some young person, you're at a college frat party and you're, you're drunk out of your mind and you drop a psychedelic and, uh, you can't remember what happened to you the next day. Uh, no, I wouldn't say that was a right. particularly meaningful experience, but can people on psychedelics, uh, have genuine mystical experience, I think is actually inarguable, uh, you know, a couple of points relative to that Houston Smith, had what he believed was a very genuine mystical experience on psychedelics in Timothy Leary's house. And when he came out and talked about that, for instance, he wrote a article called Do Psychedelic Drugs Have Religious Import? That, uh, by the way, is the most reprinted article in the history of the Journal of Philosophy. Wow. Yeah. Then uh, people would give him you know, they, they would push back at his public appearances as he traveled around the country. And Houston said, well, I tell you what, I'm going to read uh, short clips of descriptions from six experiences, three of them psychedelic, three of them on psychedelics, and three of them by tra- traditional mystics that we're all wear- well aware of, people like Rumi. And then um, you tell me the difference. You you tell me which were the psychedelic experiences and which were the genuine, quote-unquote, psychedel- uh, mystical experiences. Well, of course, when he finished reading them, nobody could tell which was which. And Houston felt like he had made his point right there, that um, people sometimes do have amazing experiences on these substances. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then the other the other thing that came to my mind was, I told you I was very involved in the TM movement, uh, Transcendental yes. Meditation Movement, Amarishi Mahesh Yogi, and I uh, was a teacher in that tradition. And Amarishi um, was giving a lecture one time at the Felt Forum in New York City, and Allen Ginsberg was there. And Allen Ginsberg asked Amarishi about psychedelics as a maybe like a gateway experience into uh, the Dharma writ large. And Murray, she said, uh, no, this is not possible. You know, these drugs, they are making you compromise. You're not having clear vision. It's not true. And Allen Ginsberg was chuckling. And uh, somebody asked him why he was laughing. And Allen Ginsberg said, because he knew a lot of people in the room, most of these people, Murray, she wouldn't be here doing meditation with you if they hadn't had psychedelic experiences that they were looking to Vedanta to explain. Mm. And, and I think that that was an, uh, you know, astute observation. Uh, yeah. I mean, it encouraged me quite frankly, you know, and now I'm confessing that I tried psychedelics, uh, you know, because of that back in, yeah. uh, in 1970. Uh, it's like, well, let's see, I have a pretty good understanding of, my experiences of non-dual awareness and meditation, and let's see what happens if I, if I take a psychedelic. So, uh, let's say I was favorably impressed. <laughs> <laughs> so that's 
it goes back to the states and traits thing. You know, I still come back to the place of, okay, uh, then you come back into the world and, and what are you going to bring back that is going to be useful in, um, in helping other people and, and, and being a useful professor to students. And, uh, you know what I'm saying? It's not, yeah. you know, Oh boy, I want to stay. Uh, I mean, you can't, you know, it would wear you out to try to stay in a psychedelic state for long periods of time, but sure, but no need to. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, in my own use, um, I, I heavily used psychedelics when I was in my teenage years, uh, into early twenties and I loved them, but I, truth be told was not using them really in any spiritual context. It was just like, Whoa, man, this is cool. Like, <laughs> you know, I was, I was digging it, but <clears throat> what I, what I do honor in retrospect, you know, it's been 10 years since I roughly 10 years since I've done any, uh, is that they, regardless, they did play a, a significant role in expanding my consciousness and opening that up. And, and what I believe, you know, to, to really having more of an open mind and an open heart in my, not just spiritual exploration, but life in general. Um, the funny thing is that the last time I tried psychedelics was the only time I ever did so with a spiritual intention. And, uh, this was roughly 10 years ago and it was, uh, I did a, a lot of mushrooms. It was a Sunday afternoon and I was by myself and I was very, very much into be here now, the classic Ram Das book. And, you know, mm -hmm. he obviously talks quite a bit about that. And I'm like, all right, you know what? I'm going to see the face of Christ. I'm going to take these and I'm going to see it. But I was not ready to do it in that kind of way. And I had a terrible experience. The only time actually, only time ever I've had a bad trip and it was really bad. Like I, I did it by myself, which uh, I had also never done that before, but I ended up freaking out and calling my parents who lived about 20 minutes away from me. I don't know why I call them and not a friend. I guess there's a, a safety thing there, but you know, they, they, they that, must have, my, that must have gone over big. Well, yeah, because my parents are pretty straight laced, you know, they don't, they don't even drink. They don't do drugs. I'm, I was definitely the black sheep in that, uh, in my whole family, but you know, they didn't know what, what mushrooms were. And so my mom was like, should I call the ambulance? And I was like, Oh God, no. <laughs> you know, that's the last thing I needed. So they came and picked me up and I, I couldn't even talk at this point. I was so out of my mind. I just, I gave my mom a my copy of be here now. And I, I muttered something like this should explain it. And then I remember they, they brought me back to their house to stay there for the night. And I walked outside to their car. It was nighttime at this point. And I looked up at the stars and all I could say to them was, it's all just too real. And that was it. it was too much. It was too much. So I got back to their house and it was a Sunday and thank God it was a Sunday because the Simpsons were on and I love the Simpsons and yeah, it helped bring me back down. Thank, thank you, Simpsons. Oh, that's funny you say that because, you know, for me, it was always back in the day, the Beatles. Yeah. Uh, yep. If I was getting in, you know, Huxley's book, Heaven and Hell about psychedelic experience, if I started to move into a hellish experience, I could put on any Beatles album and I would come out of it, you know, it yeah. would, uh, have a steadying influence on the mind to come that's to what awesome. you, yeah, you know, that's a yeah. funny story. Yeah, it, you know, it is what it is. But so it's not always a popular sentiment, but uh, especially for me, you know, I'm in recovery and, and a lot of people in recovery, it's, it's a very clear cut. 
drugs have zero benefit, etc. But I no, I, I don't agree with that. And I do think psychedelics done in the right context um, can have great, great uh, benefits for people. Like I said, I haven't done them in 10 years, but I see what they've done for other people. And uh, who am I to, yeah, to judge well, anyone else? Huxley called it a gratuitous grace. Huxley mm. said it's not necessary. That's right. why it's gratuitous. I mean, there are other ways to wake up and develop oneself spiritually. I mean, maybe you're a karma yogi. You don't meditate and do quote-unquote spiritual practices at all, but you're a volunteer for the Sierra Club, and one day when you're lifting yourself from your shovel on trail repair, you see the sun coming through the pine trees, and boom, you're in the non-dual experience that Yeah. You know, there are lots of paths of awakening and and to say, okay, well, you know, you've got to become a believer in psychedelics and take an ayahuasca ceremony or, uh, you know, I had a friend who said he wanted to put LSD in a can that was an aerosol can and he could just go up to people who were really rigid in their thinking and spray them in the face and (laughs) open them up. And I said, oh, no, I mean, you know. They would end up in these hell realms, and, and, uh, oh, and yeah. you, you would do exactly the opposite. You would confirm their closed-mindedness. So, right, it's uh, you know, viva la difference. Everybody takes their own, you know, their own path of least that resistance. Do. Yeah, that they do, and I think as uh, that's a great place to, to, I think, bring this full circle. I. I have so much more I want to talk to you about that said, I'm going to have to have you back on again at a later date. Cause I feel like we just began to scratch the surface of what we could really get into. But you know, Dana, I, I can't thank you enough for your time. Um, your, your books, we will have linked on the webpage. So everyone listening, I encourage you to take a look at the page you're on right now and you can see the links to Dana's books and his website as well. So you can learn more about him. Um, Dana, any any last thoughts before we wrap this up? Uh, no, it was really fun for me, Chris. I'm really glad we oh. had this conversation this morning, and uh, it's great being friends with you, buddy. <laughs> uh, the feeling is more than mutual. So, Dana, thank you so much for your time, and I look forward to doing this again with you. All good. Peace and love. Thanks. <laughs> This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now.